welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 174. My name is Frost, Terry Frost. As you might know from listening to that very iconic John Barry music, this time around I'm breaking the rules of Paleo Cinema Podcast and I'm going to talk about a modern film. Uh, the exception to the rule is James Bond films as they come out. I've decided of this and it's got a positive response from the pundits. So I'm looking at Spectre. The brand new 2015 James Bond film starring Daniel Craig, Christoph Waltz, Lea Seydoux, Monica Bellucci and Ray Fiennes. I'm also looking at James Bond as a phenomenon in the 21st century and, and that's probably more interesting in some ways than the movie. So sit back, relax, get yourself a vodka martini shaken, not stirred. I'll get the contact details out of the way and the show will start. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of classic movie appreciation. The rules are pretty simple. The movie has to be at least 20 years old, and I have to like it. Now, you can leave feedback via MP3 or email to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U, which would be appreciated. You can also leave a review on iTunes, but please send me an email when you do so I can check it out. You can also go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and like that page if you want updates this podcast may contain naughty words and adult concepts so if you don't want to do a lot of explaining to small children listen to it with your headphones on hi how's everybody doing um it's gonna be an interesting week for me next week and yeah this is getting a bit deep and personal so you can skip ahead a couple of minutes if you want to but um being a gentleman of a certain age on Wednesday on Tuesday I have to get a gastroscopy and a colonoscopy all at once, which is going to be rather interesting. And that means here on Sunday, I'm only allowed to eat certain foods. So I'm living on steamed fish, white bread and apple juice. So if the energy levels are low, I'm allowed to have espresso coffee as well, as long as I don't have milk in it. And I never have milk in my coffee. I'm allowed to have coffee. So I'm going to be drinking a lot of espresso and I'm going to try to make sure that I don't speak too quickly in the podcast. Yes, I've got to get that done. I've never had a general anaesthetic before, which is kind of interesting. And I'm going to kind of groove on the experience of being knocked out pharmaceutically, which is something I've never done. Um, If I die, please enjoy the podcast up to this time. Say nice things in social media about me. And I'll catch you guys on the flip side. But uh, I really don't expect that to happen. But, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting experience. And on Wednesday, I'm going to see Spectre again. The reason is that my financial advisor sent me an invitation to a free showing of Spectre on Wednesday at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I knew I was going to see it before them for the podcast, but they're laying on food and drink. And it's at a very nice Art Deco theatre in Camberwell, so I thought I'd indulge. So Sal and I are going to go off to that and uh, for my second viewing of the movie. And I don't regret the fact that I'm going to have a second viewing of the movie. Um, so there's that going on, which is kind of interesting, albeit being a pain in the ass, which, of course, is the mandatory bum joke for the English listeners. Um, yeah, so I'm going to be doing that. But uh, in the meantime, I've kind of got to eat bland food. And there's a couple of kind of cocktails of odd nutrients I've got to take tomorrow uh, three times in order to, I don't know, to turn my insides day glow so they can see what's going on in them or something like that anyway but um at the moment i'm running on not normal food for me because there's no red meat in it there's no fruit and vegetables and um it's a bit boring but i'll I'll soldier through anyway so yeah i decided to talk about spectre because i've been a james bond fan for Way too many years now. I can remember my first James Bond experience, which was my mum and her second husband, Brian, took my brother and I to see From Russia With Love and Goldfinger as a double bill at a drive-in. Now, we fell asleep part of the way through it, but I do remember little bits from From Russia With Love, the bit with the flamethrowers at the Spectre training camp with Lottie Lenya and uh, her punching Robert Shaw in the guts with some knuckle dusters and those little iconic moments I remember quite well 
Then when I was a teenager in the 1970s, the Regent Cinema in Sydney, which is now defunct and was a beautiful, great, big palace of a place up on George Street, did an enormous season of James Bond films where they were showing them in the cinemas again, all the way up to some of the Roger Moore ones. So it would have been about the mid-1970s, I suppose. But um, I went and saw a lot of the James Bond films on the big screen during those times, and they were great. Um, some of the prints were a little ropier than others, but nobody had seen for more than a decade, in some cases, these films on the big screen, and so it was immensely popular, and you could go and see a double feature of James Bond films, and if you staggered it right, you could end up seeing them all at that stage um, on the on the big screen. And the other memory I have is when I was on holidays, my father's girlfriend had family up at a place called Warren, right in the middle of New South Wales. Um, Country town, it's a um, cotton-growing area. And we went to the cinema and saw You Only Live Twice on the big screen. That would have been late 60s, probably. Not too much long, not too long after it came out. And we're in an outdoor cinema, which is kind of like a drive-in with seats. Um, And... Basically, there was uh, there were these different areas, and I kind of sat down the front and got told off because I was sitting in the area that was reserved for Aboriginal children, which shows the kind of racism the country town still had in the late 1960s. This struck me as immensely silly at the time, but there were so many grown-ups glaring at me that I ended up retreating and, and sitting elsewhere. But, um, yeah, I did see... You only live twice on the big screen in a racist country town. And, of course, when I was old enough to do it, I read the novels in those beautiful pan paperbacks, some of which I still have. Not the same copies, but the same editions. I I have a weird and eclectic collection of James Bond novels in different editions. And so I read them. I remember I was reading You Only Live Twice, the novel, while sitting up in Middlehead in Sydney, right out on a cliff overlooking... Sydney Harbour, reading the bit in You Only Live Twice, which is a whole chapter about different plant poisons. There's basically a listing of different plant poisons as a part of that novel. And um, that's the bit I was reading, sitting up on a clifftop in the summertime, out in the bush. I mean, there's all bushland and, and national park around there. still is, fortunately. And reading on a clifftop, that part of You Only Live Twice. I've got a long history with these novels and with the movies, and I've got a great fondness for them as well. I mean, I even survived through the Roger Moore years, which says a lot, though I find most of the Roger Moore James Bond films now to be unwatchably bad and just such a shit turn that the franchise took in order to throw popcorn at the audience. But I probably shouldn't go too much further down that track for now, because I've got to do the usual stuff, which is what I have been watching lately. Of course, apart from Spectre. Okay, so what have I been watching? I've got my letter boxed up, and I've got my list. Uh, I rewatched a Frankenheimer film from the mid 1960s, which I've actually talked about previously on Paleo Cinema podcast, and that is Seven Days in May. Uh, it's about an attempted military coup of the U.S. government. It's got a great cast: Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, Frederick March, Ava Gardner. Um, a lot of kind of smaller character bits in there. Edmund O'Brien's in it, and he's very good in that as well. Um, Andrew Duggan's in it, a number of other things. It's very talky in places because, it, of course, it does have a script by Rod Serling. But nonetheless, it's still a good, solid drama and, and kind of talks about the threat of militarism and the threat of the in- military-industrial complex, as it was called in those days. And... Um, yeah, it's a very atypical role and a very kind of more restrained role for Kirk Douglas. Bert Lancaster gets to choose the scenery nicely. Frederick March is the president, is very good in one of his later roles. And Ava Gardner um, actually shows a lot of class and uh, a lot of gravitas in uh, what could have been otherwise a very thankless role as the other woman to the guy about to overthrow the government. But uh, Seven Days in May is definitely on the recommended list. Uh, Then I saw something that I missed from a few years ago. That's The Imitation Game, the movie about Alan Turing, which starred Benedict Cumberbatch and Kira Knightley. Um, Not a perfect film, but nonetheless it does get across the essentials, even though, of course, being a movie, it does skew the facts slightly. 
The Essentials of the Life of Alan Turing. The uh, basically the guy who gave us what we now have as computers, though um, of course he was treated incredibly badly by uh, the British authorities and ended up getting a posthumous pardon in 2013 from Liz II. Nonetheless, um, Cumberbatch is very good in it. Knightley's very good in it. Mark Strong's in it as well, and he's um, a little bit of fun. Uh, yeah, so that one's sort of recommended. Uh, it does give us a kind of slightly movied-up view of history and doesn't go into the really dark aspects of what was done to Alan Turing. But nonetheless, uh, the acting's good, and having seen it, I'm more optimistic about Doctor Strange with Cumberbatch and the two, the new Marvel one, that they're just currently filming. So I saw that. Um, I did a movie for the radio gig, but uh, as soon as I was watching, while well, I was watching the film, and I was watching it at home on Blu-ray, I got an email from Liz Travascus, with whom I do the uh, ABC Local Radio Northern Territory gig, saying, sorry, we can't do it this week, can we do it next week? And I said yes, and uh, finished watching the film. And that is Amelie, the Audrey Tattoo movie, kind of whimsical, slightly fantastic um, French film. Uh, yeah, I just fell in love with it again, fell in love with Audrey Tattoo again. Uh, it's a lovely little whimsical film that's been criticised by various people for being a little too um, French without the kind of multiculturalism that France now has as a part of it. But um, that's kind of a, a dubious claim at best. Nonetheless, I, I love it. I love the inventiveness of it. I love the little urban legends that they um, put through it and the sweetness of the romance, and the way that Paris is filmed, of course. We've just got the news 24 hours ago about the um, Daesh attacks in Paris, and it's had a profound effect on a number of people I know. If you've ever been to Paris, those cunts, and I'll say cunts, who did the attacks um, deserve nothing but our condemnation. Um, Yeah, but... uh, yeah, getting back to Emily, I did enjoy re-watching it and revisiting it and just kind of going through that kind of charming whimsy of the film. Uh, now, there's something I took off my list of shame, in a sense, I, though I don't get ashamed of these things. I just kind of get things off my list. It's a Sam Fuller movie that I hadn't seen before, and it turned up on TCM on cable, and that is The Steel Helmet which um, is this kind of low-budget war film that um, Sam Fuller did in the early 1950s, the first Korean War Hollywood film, in a sense. And it's got Gene Evans playing um, a rough sergeant who's a veteran of um, World War II in Korea as well. And um, he's got separated from his... Um, platoon and meets up with some other stragglers as well as a young Korean boy who he nicknamed Short Round. If you ever wonder where Short Round came from in the second Indiana Jones film, it's a Sam Fuller reference. The budget was so small, it was filmed around Griffith Park in Los Angeles, and the tank you see in the movie is actually made out of plywood. That's how low budget it is. But it's got that kind of Sam Fuller grittiness and psychological realism that came from um, Fuller's time as a war correspondent. And uh, Gene Evans is fantastic playing the sergeant with the steel helmet of the title on his head and a cigar mashed into his side of his face. And, yeah, it's, um, it's a very interesting little film and it shows how much you can do on a limited budget if you've got imagination and a good story and i really enjoyed it. i'm going to go back and revisit it. in fact i may well do it for the podcast at some stage because it's um, at that level of worthiness the other movie i've seen lately is a movie which would make a great companion piece to Mad Men, and that is robert downey senior's kind of satirical comedy putney swope about um, how a black, very militant guy takes over a Madison Avenue advertising agency in 1969 when the film was filmed. And it's got some of the ads that the agency does. The ads are actually in colour where the rest of the film is in black and white. Done with a low budget, mostly in black and white. Uh, Arnold Johnson, a uh, really interesting character actor, plays Putney Swope. Antonio Fargus is in it, which is always fun. Alan Garfield turns up at the start of the film. Alan Arbus, who was married to Diane Arbus and played the psychologist in the TV series MASH, he's in there as well. And, yeah, just basically stabs at everything that was wrong with 
well, the way, what they saw as everything wrong with American culture in the late 1960s. It's kind of cool. There are bits of it that are dated. There are bits of it that are sexist. But um, nonetheless, it still punches way above its weight, and it's worth checking out. In fact, I'm not, have I, have I done, not sure if I've done Putney Swipe or not, but if I haven't, I really should add it to the list as well. Because, um, yeah, Robert Downey Jr.'s father was a filmmaker in his own right, for those who didn't know. And he made a few interesting um, little films, of which this is one. So um, that's about all I've been watching and about all I want to say about any of that. But I'm going to take a break. When I get back, the first thing I'm going to talk about is James Bond in the 21st century, how I see it, how I see the perils and how I see the, the ways in which James Bond has been interpreted have strengthened the franchise. And then I'm going to specifically talk about the movie Spectre. There will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen it, maybe hold off on that bit until after um, you have seen it. Anyway, I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I am going to be 007-ing my guts out. Pour être un agent secret, un conseil soyez discret, ne faites pas comme zéro un, qu'on a trouvé mort dans son bain. Pour être un agent secret, il vaut mieux rester muet, ne faites pas comme zéro deux. L'Agent Secret by Petula Clark when she was living in France and she kind of jumped on the Yeah Yeah music bandwagon. Um, now, on to James Bond. Now, James Bond, when looked at sort of objectively, is a very unusual movie series in the sense that it's a 53-year-old movie series about a government assassin for a government on an island off the coast of Europe. As we all know, it's based on a series of novels and story collections by Ian Fleming, an ex-military intelligence man from World War II, who was also a journalist and not incredibly successful at that, though he did have some uh, family connections. When he got kind of got sick of journalism and wasn't doing too well at it because he was a drinker and a smoker and a womanizer, and those things kind of worked against him in various industries. And he'd just been married, kind of late in life he got married, and had a child, and he kind of wanted to write a novel. And so he created a fantasy creation who was in some ways like himself, in some ways very unlike his current domestic situation. Uh, he looked, found the name from a book of ornithology. There was an author of ornitholog ornithological book of birds of the West Indies, uh, whose name was James Bond, so he picked that because it's a very prosaic name. And protagonists in novels tended to work better where you had some form of a noun as a last name. And that's something I share with James Bond. The publishing house Jonathan Cape published the first of the James Bond novels 
1953, and that was Casino Royale. Uh, really popular, Edwin, gangbusters. If you can find a first edition of that, you're set up for life. Then uh, each year, a new James Bond novel would come out. It's a shame the movies aren't the same, but you can't have everything. So in 54, we had Live and Let Die, which took James Bond to Jamaica, and a place where Ian Fleming had a house, of course, Goldeneye, and knew a lot about. And in New York, um, that's the, in some ways, the most problematic of the James Bond novels, in that there are um, aspects of them which, from a 21st century viewpoint, looked like they were racist. But if you read deeper into them, I think of their time, they had a quite enlightened position. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit, because... Uh, that idea of sexism and racism and other things in older works is quite a, quite a fraught area to go into. But uh, in 1955, we had some, a science fiction-ish James Bond novel, Moonraker, about um, a nuclear missile project in Britain, which, of course, didn't exist. So uh, that one, slightly less popular, but again, each year they were coming out and people loved them. Uh, then we had Diamonds Are Forever, set mostly in America, from Russia with Love, set on the Orient Express. Dr. No in 58, set again in Jamaica. Then Goldfinger, set in the US in 59. Uh, then a short story collection, For Your Eyes Only, in 1960, which had From a View to a Kill, For Your Eyes Only, Quantum of Solace, Risico, and the Hildebrand Rarity. In fact, the Hilde word Hildebrand gets a name check in Spectre, the movie. Then in 61, we had Thunderball. Now, around that time, the movies, the book, sorry, got an immense boost from the fact that John F. Kennedy said he loved the James Bond novels. He had a list of, he put out in a um, newspaper of the books he was reading, and he expressed great um, fanboy squee about the James Bond novels, and they gave them an enormous boost. Then after Thunderball, we went on with, in 62, The Spy Who Loved Me. In 63, the same year that the first James Bond film, Dr. No, came out, we have Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Then um, in 64, we had You Only Live Twice, set in Japan. Uh, another Jamaica-based novel in 65, The Member of the Golden Gun. And then the short story collection in 66, Octopussy, which... Sounds worse now than it did then as a title, really. But by that stage, of course, Ian Fleming had died, mostly from his indulgence in cigarettes and alcohol. But by that time, the movie series had started and the phenomenon had moved to what we called in the 1960s Bond Mania, which was kind of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe was around the time of the second Iron Man movie. It was gangbusters, it was ubiquitous. The merch and the spin-offs and the pastiches were enormous for that um, movie series. Uh, a whole genre, Eurospy, evolved based on people wanting to tap into that gold mine that was the James Bond movie series. Now, the books and the movies kind of blended with a changing in society, in Western society, a lot. There was, of course, the Cold War. There was detente later on in the Cold War. There were also other aspects as well. Uh, censorship was being loosened. So the kind of sadism and kind of sexual nature of the James Bond novels were criticised but were publicly popular at the time. Then, of course, you've got the other things going along socially, which really tapped into the popularity, particularly of the movies. Uh, the Birth Control Pill was first released in 1960, and so women then had control of their own fertility. To make love didn't necessarily mean the risk of pregnancy anymore. And that created an enormous change in society over that decade, which we're still kind of analysing and trying to come to terms with here in the second decade of the 21st century. Our attitudes to sexually active women changed so we had of course sean connery versus james bond the uber masculine james bond with the hairy chest and the quips that unfortunately became a plague upon the franchise as roger moore took over um the beautiful exotic locations the attractive women the kind of playboy lifestyle that james bond had 
was James Bond as travelogue in some senses and James Bond as a lover. Again, the, the novels and the movies coincided with the rise of Playboy magazine, so that whole Playboy philosophy and that attitude and that breaking down of old taboos and breaking down of old ways of looking at the world all played together in, in a kind of tsunami of change, which people... Um, have since kind of retreated from it and our viewpoint on it has changed but at the time they were the things that really made James Bond as popular as it is the societal changes the strength of Playboy and of course some of the James Bond stories were published in Playboy because they were a perfect match for that magazine platform but Connery's Bond was charisma without depth in some ways and as much as I love the Sean Connery James Bond films they're very much of their time and we don't learn a lot about James Bond, the human being. We learn a lot about him as the icon and as the kind of uber mentioned as the saviour of civilization in some ways, but we never learn much about the character himself. That's left to probably one of the weakest in the first phases of James Bond, which was on Her Majesty's Secret Service, where they got a non-actor, George Lazenby, to play the role. And Lazenby looked right for it, but he really was way out of his depth, and he'd be the first person to admit that. Uh, you had a strong female protagonist in that one as well, in Diana Riggs' Tracy DiVincenzo. And then you have the, for the first time, really, the personalisation of James Bond, showing James Bond as a human being with normal human feelings, in that he fell in love with um, Tracy DiVincenzo, the character played by Diana Riggs, which led to her unfortunate death at the hands of the head of Spectre. And again, this revolves back to the modern movie, Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Now, Blofeld's a very interesting character in the novels as well. In fact, he's more interesting in the characters, a character in the novels than he has ever been, with a possible exception of Spectre, and I'll leave that argument up to you, than, than he ever was in the, in the movies. Having different people playing the role each time Blofeld came up was, you know, maybe not the wisest of choices. At the start, you don't see much of him. In from Watcher of Love, he's played by one actor with the voice of another one, Eric Polman, playing the voice. That's where you get the kind of unseen Blofeld with the white cat and the signet ring and the deep, sonorous voice. That's um, And, of course, that one's been parodied a lot, including um, by Mike Myers in the Austin Powers movies. It's become almost a cliché, which is revisited again in Spectre in quite an interesting way, and I don't think it's a way that's um, kind of diminished the original power of it. Then Connery came back for Diamonds Are Forever and had to kind of tail-end the problems that came up at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the death of his wife, the revenge against... Blofeld, all of that kind of stuff um, was was left for that last canon Sean Connery movie where he was older and maybe not in as good a shape as he might have been and really didn't want to do it but did it for the money and there was that start of making the James Bond films very facile and kind of weak and jokey which of course was picked up fully by Roger Moore with his first one Live and Let Die. And then, of course, the franchise went into a tailspin. There are a number of reasons why the actor they had playing James Bond wasn't right for the role. He didn't have the essential toughness you need. Didn't have the chops as an actor. And the franchise, for some reason, went in a, a very silly way. And one of the problems they had was they were picking up on popular culture trends and running with them. Live and Let Die was influenced a lot by black exploitation movies, even though it's nowhere near as interesting or as textured or as kind of street as a black exploitation movie. There are influences of black exploitation movies on the way that um, the production company went with Live and Let Die. The black actors don't get a very good shot in it as well. Yafet Koto as Mr. Big isn't particularly good. Gloria Hendry does okay as one of the doomed Bond girls. And um, Julius Harris's Teehee Kind of is okay, but in general they kind of jumped on that bandwagon and then didn't have anywhere to take it. This happened again in the Roger Moore years when Star Wars came out and they decided to do Moonraker and they took James Bond into entirely stupid, uh, an entirely stupid direction. 
those things are embarrassing, those films. They did try to draw back on it um, in movies like For Your Eyes Only, but the damage had been done, and Roger Moore was getting older and older and was never right for the role anyway, in spite of the fact that he played James Bond a number of times. It would have been any number of other actors who might have been interesting choices and could have revived the franchise at the time. Uh, then there was a gap, and then, of course, we had Timothy Dalton. Now, I've got a lot of fondness for the two Timothy Dalton Bond films. In fact, I've talked about them on Paleo Cinema podcast before, and I, I do have a lot of respect for them. They were the first James Bond films in a post-AIDS world, so the kind of promiscuity was drawn back out of respect for that message that was getting out socially. And again, the way society changes has impacted the James Bond films in a number of ways. But all credit to Timothy Dalton. I think he did a good job of it in trying to take James Bond back more toward the book James Bond. He looked right for the role. He, he had the perfect look for the literary James Bond. But there were legal problems and studio problems and, and other things which delayed the, content, the continuation of the series. But I think that one of the things Dalton gave the series, which is quite useful, was he gave us a human James Bond. He gave us a, a relatable James Bond. He didn't give us the cartoon of Roger Moore or the Ubermensch of um, Sean Connery, but he gave us a relatable Bond. And for that, it was kind of like foreshadowing what happened when Daniel Craig eventually took over the franchise. Then, of course, we had the Pierce Brosnan years, and Pierce Brosnan was almost an amalgam of the Roger Moore and the Timothy Dalton James Bonds. Um, we never really saw a lot of depth from him. We never had the owners of the franchise have the courage to tell in-depth stories. They did go in a gritty direction, particularly in the last one where he was tortured by North Korea. Um, they did kind of have a little bit of grit and a little bit of guts to them. They were in a computer age world. They were in a world of the internet. They were in a world where the gadgets were a lot more realistic and relatable, but they were still gadgets. But there were, the character was starting to date a little bit. Uh, there was not the relatability of the Timothy Dalton Bond, and there wasn't the hero worship Bond that we would have had with Sean Connery. There was... Things weren't quite going right. And then, of course, um, Pierce Brosnan was sacked from the job. And in 2006, we were given Casino Royale. And, of course, the four-movie arc that we now have of the Daniel Craig James Bond. Daniel Craig didn't look right for James Bond. He was a little too short, a little too blonde, and a little too kind of thuggish looking. But psychologically, he seems to have nailed... James Bond for the 21st century. All credit to the movie makers and the script writers and the fact that the franchise owners, the Broccolis and the others who own the franchise, really did have to retcon and reinvent James Bond for the 21st century and did a fantastic job of it. The success of the series proves that. We, got a, we had a James Bond at the start of his career. We saw that arc of him getting the 00 license in the pre-title sequence of Casino Royale. We really did get, for the first time, a Bond that we could understand. And the four-movie arc of the Daniel Craig James Bond did something unprecedented in the history of the James Bond films in that it told us the story of James Bond as a human being even while it was doing the necessary beats for a James Bond film the action sequences, the romance the locations, all of that stuff we were still getting nonetheless we got a relatable James Bond and they did that by taking it back to the original novel the first novel where James Bond and Vesperlin meet, and he is betrayed by her. So, with Casino Royale, and to a lesser extent, Quantum of Solace, and particularly strongly in Skyfall and Inspector, we learn who James Bond is, how he became who he is, and how he maintains who he is. And that's really interesting for a long-term Bond fan like me. It's something that I've been I've wanted for a very long time, and the franchise hasn't delivered to me. It gives us a James Bond who is an incredibly flawed human being, but nonetheless a human being. Um, he's called a blunt instrument in Casino Royale by Judy Dench's M. And at the time, he was a blunt instrument. What he becomes increasingly is a finely honed instrument. He goes through 
um, tragic personal circumstances. He learns more about his own history, things he didn't know about it. He faces that history, particularly in Skyfall, where he goes back to the ancestral home. And that's a beat that really resonates with me because going back to a childhood home where traumatic things happen is something that I can personally relate to very strongly. And to have, of necessity, Craig's bond go back to the ancestral home and kind of face his demons and overcome Raul Silva. And in doing that, lose his surrogate parent, M, yet again, is a very very strong something that resonates with me. And, of course, the other thing that the Bond franchise did with Daniel Craig, which was, for the most part, unprecedented, is the villains are all played by fine character actors. They really spent the bucks on getting the right people for that. You've got Mads, Mads Mikkelsen, you've got Matthew Almerick, who was possibly the weakest of the four. You then have, of course, Javier Bardem as Silva, fantastically over-the-top but grounded James Bond villain. And then in this one, you have Christoph Waltz playing um, Franz Oberhauser, who, and this is a spoiler, we know recreated and reinvented himself as Ernst Stavro Blofeld. This is because the ownership of Spectre as a concept was eventually brought back into the franchise after some legal disputes in 2013. Uh, In November 2013, MGM and the McClory estate, uh, which I've got to explain in a moment, settled the issue and the James Bond franchise got the rights back to Blofeld and Spectre. Now, the reason I say the McClory estate is that there was an idea in the late 1950s for James Bond to be a TV series. And a guy called Kevin McClory was brought on board and worked with Ian Fleming to create some plots and create some devices. And one of the things they came up with was Spectre, the Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge and Extortion. Now, the acronym has been dropped for the uh, 2015 movie, I should hasten to add. But because there was that dual ownership of Blowfoot as a villain and Spectre as an organisation, the McClory estate fought for 40 years with MGM and E.ON, the owners of the James Bond franchise, over that. Uh, after Thunderball, McClory got the, and uh, Jack Whittingham, the screenwriter, got the rights to the Thunderball story. And that's, of course, how Never Say Never Again retold Thunderball as a non-franchise, non-canon James Bond film, with giving us the last Sean Connery James Bond. But it's all back in the family now, and I think it's the right thing to do It's to bring Spectre back because there's something about the times we live in now that are right for an enormous shadowy organisation that manipulates governments and manipulates companies and manipulates public opinion and manipulates everything else in order to keep the influence it has and basically rule the world. And that's what this story gets the Daniel Craig Bond back to that threat to the world that was a feature of James Bond films for the first 30-odd years of the franchise, that that existential threat to the world as we know it. And that's kind of cool. I, I like that. I like that kind of going back to sources in a weird sense. But uh, just to address a couple of things about James Bond as a character before I get into the review of Spectre... There's talk about him being sexist and misogynistic, and in fact, Daniel Craig has said he is. And that brings up something that I found kind of interesting in the last few years of people talking about movies. And that is that they expect the protagonist in movies to be perfect human beings, in a sense. They expect the heroes of a franchise to be without flaw, to be politically correct, to be non-sexist, to be non-violent, to be all of those things. And by the very nature of the character and by the very nature of the franchise, James Bond cannot be those things. The last four James Bond films have shown us that he is a flawed character. He's somebody with a very difficult upbringing. He's somebody who's made career choices that lead him towards a place that indulges the fact that he is very good at violence. He's And he enjoys the things that come with that, the travel, the... Uh, 
access to women. They're pitting himself against the villains. All of that kind of stuff is something that, in a deep and not really pleasant way, this character needs. He needs to challenge things that are a threat. And that's kind of looped into the fact that he has a deep patriotism. He doesn't really know how to do anything else. He can't function outside of that framework of official sanctioned thug and assassin. That is the the kind of tragedy, in a weird sense, of the James Bond character. The fact that he does um, treat women badly is evidence of the fact that he treats everybody badly. If you have a look, Inspector, there's there's not only just the threat to the world there, but there are the threats to the careers and the chances of legal penalties for two of his co-workers as well in the film. It's one of those things where he puts everything on the line so he expects those around him to do so. He kind of goes outside official sanction because he trusts his own judgment to that extent. He can see things that other people can't, and he follows through on that. Yes, in the past, and as Skyfall showed us, he had a problem with alcohol and he had a problem with um, prescription medications, maybe non-prescription medications as well. But the interesting thing, and probably the telling thing about that is, those are his go-tos when he wasn't being James Bond as we know him. When he was shot off that railway overpass by Eve Moneypenny and disappeared he was adrift. He didn't know who he was. Obviously, there were pain issues as well. Having shards of depleted uranium in your shoulder can probably fuck you up and cause you a, a bit of pain. But because he wasn't being his own best self, that's the reason why he resorted to those um, ways of dulling the pain, in a sense. And that, that's kind of an interesting... That's a more complex James Bond than we've ever had before. That flawed nature. And as time goes on, truth. Skyfall and into Spectre we see James Bond coming to terms with his own flaws, not necessarily overcoming them but putting them in a framework where he can function and putting them in a place and having that understanding of self that enables him to do what he needs to do to do his job so I'm going to take a little break now and then when I get back I'm going to talk with spoilers about the 2015 film Spectre This organization, do you know what it's called? Its name is Spectre. Look around you, James. Everything you believed in, a ruin. Why did you come? to kill you. And I thought you came here to die. Well, it's all a matter of perspective. Spectre is a 2015 James Bond film, the 24th official James Bond film. And it's copped a lot of shit. The, the reviews have been pretty scathing of it. Though one friend did point out that the reviews, English reviews tend to be more positive than the American reviews. And the Australian reviews sit somewhere in the middle. But nonetheless, um, I'll be out there. And yes, I am a, a kind of tragic when it comes to James Bond films. But I enjoyed it. It didn't disappoint me. It it did some things that I was surprised by. It kind of works well. I'm going to be seeing it again, as I said. But for me, the movie worked. Now, there are are weak spots, but then this movie carries a lot of baggage. One of the weird things about it, and this is probably something that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to come up against sooner or later, is there's enormous baggage in having a long movie series. There are 23 James Bond films before this one. And to a certain extent, in the minds of a certain kind of viewer, the movie carries those that baggage behind it. 
Whereas for me, it kind of worked. I like the fact that Blofeld's back. And I like the fact that Spectre's back and that there is that big bad out there for James Bond rather than having a series of smaller bads. And you know, the, the kind of retconning that rolls um, Quantum in as a subset of Spectre doesn't really offend me. Quantum was always there to be the alternative Spectre in a sense. So when they got the rights back to the concept of Spectre, having Quantum be a, a kind of subset of that isn't a bad way of going about it. You've got to acknowledge it. It's in canon. It's in the Daniel Craig James Bond series. And it yeah, it has to be acknowledged. I enjoyed the film. Uh, right from the start. Now, I'll leave aside the Sam Smith song because I think it's very weak. And I don't even remember any of it. It's unmemorably weak. It's got the lush kind of string orchestration. It's not totally dissimilar to Skyfall, but I think that the lyrics and Adele singing the theme song from Skyfall make it a much stronger thing. There's only one guy that can really sing James Bond theme songs for me, and that's Tom Jones. Thunderball had the right kind of vitality for a James Bond theme song sung by a man. But having said that, the movie starts out fantastically. There's a whole sequence in Mexico City during the Day of the Dead, and there's a bravura single-take sequence by Sam Mendes. Whether they use digital trickery or not to kind of put subtle cuts in there, it's beautifully put together. Moving down a Day of the Dead celebration and going past James Bond to see one of the other um, players in the... Um, sequence, moving back to James Bond, following him into a building, up to the roof of a building, across to the another roof of a building where he has to basically take out somebody. We don't know why yet, though that is told to us later in the film. And the interesting thing about this pre-title sequence is that it directly relates to the rest of the film, as indeed did the one in Skyfall. Um, and then things go to shit, things blow up, a building falls down, there's all sorts of um, craziness goes on, but it, it kind of works really well because it gives us James Bond as that unstoppable, focused secret agent. And I, I really appreciated that. I, I liked it a lot. It almost had a found footage look at times with that long single take shot, but it, it kind of worked in the context and it gave us... James Bond, the professional, doing something. It's only later we find out, of course, that it's an unauthorised event and that MI6 didn't didn't tell him to go there and do this. It's information given to him in a video recording sent to him after her death by Judy Dench's M. And that's kind of cool. It gives us a continuity with the Judy Dench M as well as the new M, of course, played very well by Ray Fiennes. I kind of like his M. He's partly a man of action. He's, in a sense, a bureaucratic dinosaur, which, as, as events play out in the film, this is shown. But he's one of those kind of necessary old hands that you need there in order to stop the whole intelligence apparatus of the UK heading in a direction which doesn't really work for it. Now, I won't go too much into the plotline. I'll go around the periphery of that, but the cast is very good. Of course, you've got Daniel Craig. Christoph Waltz as Blofeld is good. He's got the madness you need. He's it's Because it's Christoph Waltz, it uh, sounds a little bit like a lot of other characters he's played. But you need an over-the-top actor like him and with that kind of euro sleaze cred that christoph Valls has to play this kind of role i have to see him in a future james bond film there there is the opportunity for blowfield to come back i'll be honest with you about that if you haven't seen the film and i want to see his blowfield back because i like his blowfield i like the way he plays it i uh, and the other thing we've got to address too is the family relationship between blowfield and bond that personalization um I think that it works. Now, of course, the the story is that um, Franz Oberholzer, the character played by Vals, is the son of the man who took James Bond in when his parents died in a climbing accident. Um, he's, James Bond had assumed that both Franz and his father had died in a skiing accident in an avalanche, but that turns out not to have been the case, and... 
Oberholzer reinvented himself as Blofeld and created the mega organization known as Spectre. And now I don't mind that I, because the whole Daniel Craig James Bond has been about personal story to a big extent. The first one was about the personal story between himself and Vesper Lind. The second one, less so, I think it was more about the tail end of that and getting closure on that relationship. In fact, um, Casino Royale and Quantum of Souls tell one story. The third one was about him coming to terms with his past. And this one's about his past coming back and biting him in the ass. And I don't mind that. Having a four-story arc that tells us more about James Bond, who the man is, and letting him come to terms with his own demons, I think is as valid as any other James Bond movie in the past. I don't mind that at all, that link between Oberholzer slash Blofeld and Bond strengthens their enmity in a lot of ways. They knew each other in the past. They have that relationship, uh, the hatred that Blofeld has for Bond has a very strong basis because of that, whereas previously in the books and in the movies, the reason why Blofeld hates Bond is because he kind of foiled his plots and because he's a really mad bastard. This one gives it a more kind of human thing, which is jealousy of the relationship that Oberholzer's father developed with Bond when Bond was a boy. That kind of crazy sociopathic jealousy works for me better than you fucked me up last time, I'm going to fuck you up this time. It grounds the relationship between the two characters nicely. Um, then the, the other people in there, Leia Seydoux as Madeline Swan, who, again a spoiler, is the daughter of Mr. White, the character played by Jesper Christensen. Uh, who we've seen, of course, all the way back as far as the memorably, most memorably in the uh, end sequence of Casino Royale. There's kind of an end to that relationship, but I, I really like the arc of that character. There are very few arcs that villains get in multiple James Bond movies, but Mr. White's character arc in the four Daniel Craig James Bond films is an interesting one and Christensen plays the character differently in each one really nice piece of acting in there of course we've got Rory Kinnear again as Bill Tanner the chief of staff in MI6 Ben Whishaw really beds down Q, his Q becomes more nuanced and more interesting and at one stage is threatened by the bad guys during this movie which is kind of cool Naomi Harris's Money Penny gets a bit more to do but maybe not enough I'd like to see more of her doing stuff then we've got um, Monica Bellucci as Lucia Scara the widow of an assassin that Bond killed and Bellucci doesn't get a long sequence in this but she shows that at the age of 51 she's an incredibly sexy actress the liaison between her and Bond is really good and it plays very hot. Now, one of the things this movie does, and it does it both when Bond is with Lucha and when he is with Madeline Swan, the use of kissing as a way of building erotic tension is really interestingly done in this film. Just watch the way James Bond kisses women in the film. There's a kind of tentativeness, a pulling back, a teasingness to the kisses that really works well. You don't need the nudity to get the eroticism. There's an incredibly erotic way that they handle kissing in this film. Then, of course, you've got the, the villains of the piece. Um, you've got, as, you, as I said, you've got Christoph Valls, but you've also got Dave Bautista, who, of course, played Drax the Destroyer in Guardians of the Galaxy as Mr. Hinks, who is the kind of big muscle bad of the movie. He's the odd job. And he's really great in it. Um, Dad Batista, I like his acting a lot. And he only gets to say one word in this movie. But nonetheless, he's a really great presence. He moved Because, of course, he was a um, fighter before he was an actor. He's got the physicality that kind of really works there. He's agile. He's fast. He's implacable. And he does bring a lot of style to it as well. I like him as an actor. I want to see him do more stuff. I think that... He really does have the chops to be more than just a slab of meat in action films. And his Mr. Hinks really makes that work. Now, Andrew Scott playing Max Demby, the uh, member of the Secret Service, who gets the code name C, which, of course, they make some jokes about him being called C. He played Moriarty in the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock's. 
and he doesn't play the character terribly differently from that. Maybe a little less crazy, but it's pretty obvious right off the bat that he's not kosher. But nonetheless, he's um, in there and he does give voice to a certain mindset in intelligence communities where they believe that signals intelligence and technologies overwhelm the needs for having boots on the ground. And that, of course, doesn't proves not to be the case. And one of the arguments that's running through all four of the Daniel Craig James Bond films is, is the single agent going out there and doing things still relevant in a world such as we have now, where drones and satellites and computer intelligence, well, computer intelligence in the sense of intelligence information gathered by a computer, make information gathering so much easier and so much more of the moment is there still a place for um, a single agent with the license to kill in that kind of a world and repeatedly through those four movies the answer is yes both of them are necessary but to disregard the human element is something you do at your own peril and you know, that kind of addresses the fact that the argument that James Bond is no longer relevant. They actually face it straight on and say, yes, there are times when you need somebody who's there right at the time doing something and following through on it. And that as much as human intelligence is corruptible, so too are technological ways of gathering intelligence. And one of the main cruxes of this film is that flaw in you know, um, intelligence gathering by computer it's only as reliable as the people doing the listening and their ability to keep that information from other people and that really works for me uh, again one of the virtues of the Bond films has always been location shooting and we go from Mexico City to London we then go on to Italy and there's a really nice car chase along the River Tiber and through the streets of um, Rome which is kind of cool. We get a lot of that quieter moments where there's a meeting of Spectre that James Bond infiltrates, only he's not really infiltrating it, but I'll leave that again. Um, we've got the bits in the villa with um, Lucha, the Monica Bellucci character, which really work and are really nuanced and are played very subtly. The camera work in that is, is really great as well. And one of the things that a friend of mine pointed out, which I knew but it bears repeating, is none of the Bond women die in this movie. That cliche of one Bond woman dying, the other one surviving to provide a scabbard for James Bond's dick at the end of the film isn't the case. Um, Bond actually hasn't cares enough for Lucia to take steps to protect her, and one of his old friends gets name-checked in that protection, though unfortunately he doesn't appear in the film, and it would have been nice if he, there had been room for him to do so. But nonetheless, I like that. The, I like the fact that this movie, even though it's flawed, checks a lot of old stuff from James Bond novels as well. Now, there's a bit in... Um, Wikipedia, which I'm just going to kind of paraphrase here, there's the fact that um, Franz Oberholzer is somebody who is kind of related to a character that appears in the short story Octopussy. The reason why James Bond goes after a certain character in that story is based on his history in the Swiss Alps with a man called Oberholzer who taught him how to ski and taught him how to basically be a man. Um, and was temporarily legal guardian for Bond. There's some paperwork in one sequence, and I just hit the keyboard. There's some paperwork in one sequence that shows that Bond's aunt, Charmian Bond, was his guardian at the time, which is kind of cool. There, there are um, there's a MI6 safe house called Hildebrandt Rarities and Antiques, which is a, a name check on the Hildebrand Rarity, a short story and for your eyes only, and. There's even a um, reference to Kingsley Amos's Colonel's Son, which is the James Bond novel that came after Ian Fleming died. Uh, Kingsley Amos wrote one under the name of Robert Markham called Colonel's Son. And the torture that James Bond undergoes by Blofeld in the Tunisian desert is a kind of check on a certain sequence in Colonel's Son, which is kind of cool. Colonel's Son is the only James Bond novel for which I have a first edition. 
I have a first hardcover edition, but without the um, you know the paper cover that sits around the outside. I forget what it's called, but I don't have that. But I do have a first edition of that particular James Bond novel. Not sure what it's worth, but I'm keeping it stashed away. Um, so yeah, there's a kind of acknowledgement of history. There's an acknowledgement of the history of the James Bond films as well in that there's something that happens to Blofeld which harks back to an earlier James Bond film. And I love the Moroccan desert as it is in this movie um, and the revelation of Blofeld's hideaway in the Moroccan desert which is very cool and harks back to something we see earlier in You Only Live Twice which is kind of cool. And um, and that yeah, you know, the fact that what they how they get picked up from a train station to be delivered to the evil guy's headquarters is kind of cool in there as well. In fact, the other thing which I really like in this film is the fact that the biggest stunt explosion of all time appears in this movie in Blofeld's Hideaway, and it is fucking impressive. That um, explosion is a real explosion, and it is wow good. There are a lot of wow moments in this film. As I said, it's got, because of the nature of the film, it's got a lot of baggage from previous films and it's got an enormous expectation from the audience. And for years, people have been saying that James Bond films are dated and James Bond films are kind of had their day. But I don't agree. Uh, I'm going to go against other critics on this one in saying that this James Bond film sits really well with the other four, other three. Daniel Craig ones and it really does sit up there I like what they've done I like the fact that they haven't just kind of used the same formula as they have in previous Bond films they've been willing to change canon in the sense of that relationship between Bond and Blofeld which I think does work and I like Craig as Bond now Daniel Craig has, has complained since day one about playing James Bond and I can kind of understand where he's coming from. You can get very easily get typecast in this kind of a role. But on the other hand, in some ways, it's the sweetest gig a male actor can have in film, um, playing James, uh, such an iconic character with such a great history and being able to bring the new things to the character that Daniel Craig does is to his credit, whereas bitching and moaning about that level of success and that level of expertise of playing an iconic character. Really, you know, I don't know whether he's angling for more money or he wants early out of his contract because he's got one more contractually obligated film to do. I don't know where the guy's head's at. But I mean, whether he's just doing it to generate buzz for the film, who knows? Um, these things are a strange and unknowable thing to me in some ways. But nonetheless, I enjoyed Spectre a lot. I'm going to re enjoy re-seeing it on um, Wednesday next week. And I think that what you've got to do is kind of disregard a lot of the buzz around the movie and a lot of what's being said about it and just enjoy the, the experience for yourself. And kind of, I, I, I do have that great admiration for the fact that they're willing to change canon to strengthen certain aspects of the the game they're playing with this film. The other thing I was going to mention is there's been a lot of talk about who's going to be the next James Bond. A lot of people are talking Idris Elba, and I had an instinctive reaction to that. Maybe there's a residual born in the 1950s racism about that, but then I've been thinking it through, and I've been digging away at my own preconceptions of, of this and my own preconceptions of, of how should certain people play certain roles. And here's what I come up with. If scientifically there is no basis for race, it's just a slight variation with a few genes in the human genome, then there is no reason why an actor of colour can't play James Bond. I think that what we want from a James Bond film is somebody that's going to enhance the character, somebody who's got the toughness, somebody who's got the charisma, somebody who's got the physical chops to play the character, somebody who we can point out and say, yes, this is a James Bond for this time and they did it well and the movie supported them in doing so. If that person ends up being Idris Elba, I'll be fine with that. I've really kind of discarded my own preconceptions there because there are a lot of people born in Scotland who are black and I can kind of work with that as as a character thing. And I, I like Idris Elba as an actor. I think he does have what it takes should the gig come to him. But one way or the other, I look forward to seeing James Bond films until the day I die.
I like the franchise. I like the fact that they're bold enough to have a protagonist who does have flaws which make us uncomfortable. We don't have to have a James Bond that ticks all the boxes for our own current cultural preoccupations. We don't. He doesn't have to not be misogynistic. We just have to know that he is. We just have to go, okay, this character is a misogynist in this context. We know this about the character, but he's a strong protagonist. The movies are entertaining, and the actor is doing a very good job of it. We don't have to have all of our heroes be flawless. Having a flawed anti-hero James Bond is what the gig is. It's not about having an iconic godlike character who saves the world all the time. Having a flawed character save the world is much, much more interesting. So that's about it for this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. It is something different for Paleo Cinema, and I like that difference. I like that variety. And I will do every James Bond film as it comes out until I step on a rainbow. There's a promise to you. But anyway, as usual, um, thank you for listening, and thank you to all of the Patreon supporters who will now get their credits at the end of the podcast. Um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast i hope you like watching good films i hope everybody's doing okay and if you aren't doing okay please reach out for help it is such an essential thing for you to do and you don't have to go through the shit you're going through alone so take care i'm going to do the credits now and i'll be back in a week with another martian driving podcast in two weeks with the paleo cinema look after yourselves and here are the credits for the patreon subscribers to the podcast in the style of movie credits I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris the Musical Director, Jan the Dialect Coach, Armin the Key Grip, Matt the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia our Casting Director, Chris our Camera Operator, Christopher our Gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, the New York unit director. And Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. We also have Paul, who does the special makeup effects. And Kathleen, who has yet to have a job in the credits. And Eric, of course, is the set security lead so thank you to everybody who supports the podcast and to the people who listen to it if you want to support the podcast with some micro payments please go to patreon.com slash paleo cinema and i'll catch all of you next time